Hi, I'm Tom Overton, and I am a member of Al-Anon. And as uh, Patia said a while ago, we had the privilege of meeting Betty and Joe some years back. And they're two of the people who have helped us along in our programs. They show us that this thing does work if you try. You can't show up for one or two meetings and think you've got a cure because it don't work that way. But uh, Betty, I consider a real dear friend. Uh, we spend a lot of time away from with them, away from the program, as well as at the program. We go to Rough River at the same time they do. And it really has been a, pri a privilege for me to uh, be part of their lives. And with that, I'll uh, give you Betty. I'm sure you're going to hear a good story. Well, he's told you everything. I can sit down now, right? God, I offer myself to Thee for You to allow me to be Your servant today. My name is Betty Snyder, and I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. And I am so nervous. <laughs> I want to thank the committee, I think, <laughs> for asking Joe and I to talk. I know they uh, I know they ask other people before us, and I'm sorry they couldn't make it. <laughs> One of those couples happens to be my sponsor and her husband. She told me to make sure I didn't lie because it was being taped and she would know. And Rick assured me that she will get a copy of this tape. I hope today to share my experience, strengths, and hopes. Uh, I'm not a speaker. I just have one story to tell. Unfortunately, there's people here that have heard my heard my me talk before. You may or you may not hear some of the things that you've heard before. When you lived with alcoholism as long as I did, active alcoholism. And when you raise five children during that length of time, there's a lot of stories in there, believe me. A lot of war stories. A lot of the war stories, if it hadn't been for me, they wouldn't be. When my alcoholic came in, the doorknob was attached to my mouth. But I'll start back earlier than that, though. Uh, I was born in Tennessee. Uh, there's a good possibility my my dad could have been an alcoholic. 
the story I was told was that the night I was born, he came in drunk, passed out on the couch. He woke up hollering, where's my baby daughter? And there was no way to know that I was born yet or that I had been a, was a girl. But supposedly he had a dream that night while he was passed out. An old hag came to him and told him, if you don't stop your drinking, start living right for the Lord, I will take your baby daughter away from you. It's just a story I was told. I don't know. I do know I was born dead. The doctor worked with me and dipped me in hot water and then cold water, hot water and cold water, and I came alive. Coincidence? I don't know. I really don't believe there is such a thing as coincidence today. You can take that story in however way you like it. But that's the way I came into this world. And from that day on, my father never had another drink. My father started going to church. He became a Southern Baptist lay minister. Now, for all of you in here that isn't familiar with that, you're going to be damned if you do it. Anything you decide you want to do, if it's fun, if it's exciting, you're probably going to go to hell. Uh, but that's okay. That's a part of my life. I'm still a member of the Southern Baptist religion. There's some things in it today that I don't agree with, but that's okay. You know, there's a lot of religions that, that, that there are certain areas in there that I don't understand and don't believe in, but that's okay too. I'm not up here to preach religion. I'm not up here to preach at all. I'm up here to tell you what, what I was like and what happened and what it's like today, and I hope I can do that. When I was, as I was growing up with my father, uh, I was his only child. My mother had been married before. She had a a daughter and a a son. So I had an older brother and an older sister. I never called them half-brother and sister. They were always brother and sister. And, uh, but I was my father's only child. And he treated me like a princess. He always called me his little princess. And I had him wrapped around my little finger. But I respected him. If he told me to do something, I'd say, yes, Daddy. And I did it. Mother could tell me to do something, and I'd say, wait a minute. And my father would say, Betty Ruth. Yes, sir. And I went and did it. So there was a lot of respect there for him. And in a lot of ways, as maybe you'll hear on down later on in my story, if I can get to that part, uh, you'll understand why a lot of it was unhealthy respect. I loved my father dearly. And I had a hard time when he died, even at that age. Because I immediately became a sponge to soak up guilt. 
I thought that somewhere, somehow or the other, I had done something to cause God to take my daddy away from me. That's when the guilt and that's when my own isms started. Growing up, going to school and stuff, I never felt like I belonged anywhere. Everybody else had a mommy and daddy. I just had a mama. Uh, there came a time when my mother met my stepfather, and he was in the Air Force. And at first I thought it was going to be fun, because it was different. It was exciting, you know, learning about different things. Uh, my stepfather drank. Therefore, booze, beer, stuff started being brought into the house, which I was not used to. He, they also had a lot of the young airmen would come to their house to do their drinking because we lived in a dry county. And uh, if they went out somewhere, then they would end up getting in jail, getting into trouble. Well, I learned early on that if I became a bartender, such as going to the refrigerator, taking the beer out and bringing it to the guys, you know, they'd give me a nickel, they'd give me a quarter, you know, and I kind of liked that. I had my own spending money. I could do with it what I wanted to do. But there came a time when... Uh, it wasn't fun anymore. Uh, I can't say that my stepfather was an alcoholic. I do know that I'd come home from school events or spending the night at a girlfriend's, and uh, sometimes things would be fine. The next time I'd come home, I'd find Mother laying in a pool of blood, or I'd find him standing over her, beating on her. One time I came home and he was staying over beating, beating her and there was a Pepsi bottle sitting on the bar. And I picked it up and I hit him over the head with it. The last time I saw him, he still carried a scar from it. Uh, Joe told you about meeting in Italy. My stepfather got transferred first to France and we spent uh, nine months in France. And then we transferred over to Italy. And I was still, I always felt like I needed to be a part of. And I never felt like I was a part of. But I became a good actress. I believe if there was awards for the type of acting I did, I believe I would have won one. If the group of people I wanted to be with was over on this side of the room and they were uh, being Miss Goody, Goody Goody, I could go over there and I could join them and I could be Miss Goody Goody. But if the group I wanted to be with was on this side of the room and they were there and pointing fingers and talking about everybody and, and trying to be, uh, can't even think of the word now I'm wanting to say, but I could be, I could fit right in with those people. I was always, I always needed to fit in. And I never fit. It was like trying to put a square peg into a round hole. 
And all the time, this hole in my stomach kept getting bigger, and I didn't know why. After our time in Italy, uh, well, I could have qualified for Al-Anon back then, believe you me. Uh, in order, when we were in Italy, there was it was such a small base, and there wasn't enough teenage boys to go around, so some of us older girls went, dated some of the younger military guys. And there was this one group of guys that would come over there, and they'd stay three months over there, and then they'd come back to the States three months, back over three months. You know, it was always the same group. And I started going with one of these guys, one of the trips over. And uh, the second time he came over to Italy, well, we just picked up where we'd left off before and uh, was dating. And uh, this last weekend that he was supposed to be in Italy before he came back to the States again, he chose to go to Venice to sightsee with some of his friends. Now, Venice is a beautiful city. I've been there myself. It's beautiful. If you ever get to Italy, please go see it. But how dare he? The last weekend, and he's going to leave me. And I was furious. It just so happened I was also in a teenage bowling league, and, and we were on uh, bowling that Saturday morning, and and I was all complaining to one of my friends about it, you know. And uh, I said, the first halfway decent-looking guy walks in that door back there. I said, I'm going to flirt with him. And she said, well, what do you want to do that for? I said, well, there's Mac's friend over there. And he'll go back and tell Mac. Well, I had no sooner got out that out of my mouth. And guess who walked in? <laughs> my other half, who I still have today. Well, after that day, I didn't want anything to do with him because I knew Mike, uh, Mac would get the message. And, and, uh, but every place I showed up, there he was. You know, if I went to the movies, there was Joe. If I went to the BX, there was Joe. If I went to the library, there was Joe. I could not get rid of him. So anyway, he finally chased me until I caught him. <laughs> and he told you how we got married, you know logical, alcoholic thinking. But, you know, I didn't... I thought my my stepfather was an alcoholic. But when Joe drank, he just went to sleep. Or if he didn't go to sleep, he just wanted to lay around and cuddle. You know, there was none of this mean stuff. And I didn't associate him being an alcoholic. Because when when you go to parties, what do you do? If there's drinking, you drink. And that's the only time I ever saw him drunk was when he went to one of Mother's parties, you know. And, well, that'd be all right. But we got married, and uh, I called my mother. And I said, Mother, I won't be getting back on the bus today to come home. And she said, why not? And I said, well, there's no buses running through here. All right. But it's, and she said, well, why not? And I said, well, it's snowing. Now, folks, I never lied to my mother. I didn't. I promise you I didn't. There were no buses running through there. I had to go to Owensboro to get the bus, not Knott'sville, where we were at. There was no buses running through Knott'sville. And it was snowing. It was flurrying. But anyway, we got married, and uh, I called her and told her what we did. And she says, I'll be right up there. 
Well, as soon as she saw the marriage license and saw that we got married by a Baptist preacher, that was fine. She never said another word because she always liked Joe. She always said he was a good man. Well, as things progressed, uh, 11 months later, I had my first child, and I was pregnant with that child when we went down from Knoxville down to Owensboro to a fair that they had down there. And of course, when we left home, Joe was drinking. He had his paycheck in his pocket, and we went down there, and they had one of those shell games where he could double his money. Well, just about the time he was ready to double his money, he'd screw up again, and they'd say, well, one more time, and you can double it again. And he ended up losing his whole paycheck that night. On the way back home, we were arguing, and uh, he he said, uh, well, he, he got angry, and, and so he started driving too fast. And we had what they call Dead Man's Curve coming up on Highway 144. Some of you from over in there may know where I'm talking about. And I tried to get him to slow down, and he wouldn't slow down. And I opened my car door, ready to jump out, and he slowed down. Then I got madder. He went the rest of the 15 miles home at 5 miles an hour. He couldn't please me. But, you know, that was a minor argument. Because we had regular war zones at our home before it was over with. Not too long before before he went into treatment, we had an argument. And before that argument was over... I was chasing him around the house in front of the kids with a butcher knife in my hand. I'm not proud of that today. But it's part of what I became. And you know, I feel like today that one of the reasons I'm standing here in front of you today is because God gave me a baby I didn't want. When I found out I was pregnant with our fifth child, I prayed to God to take it, baby, from me that I didn't want it. I did things in that pregnancy that I would never have done in any of the others. That I wouldn't have done because I was afraid I might fall and hurt the baby. Uh, So there was a lot of things that I did that could have caused me to have a miscarriage, but God in his wisdom, he knew I needed this baby. From the time she was about three or four years old, there were a lot of times I thought about killing myself. You know, if you can't can't win them over, just do away with it. There's a big hill in Tell City called Washington Hill. And if I went to the top of that in a car, 
put it in neutral. Just let go of my hands off the wheel, go right down through there, through the flood wall, into the river. Something kept me from doing it. And almost every time, it was this little girl crawling up on my lap, putting her arms around my neck and saying, Mommy, I love you. This little girl and I are are real close today. I don't know that that has anything to do with it, but she's the one that took advantage of Alateen and Al-Anon later on. And she calls me every other day and she says, Mom, you're my best friend. And I'm very proud of that girl. Joe told you about her and her husband volunteering to do the to help out the victims of the terrorism. And I asked her, I said, honey, can you do it? And she said, Mom, I don't know. But she says, the least I can do is try. But she says, I know I can call somebody or talk to somebody if I can't do it. This type of girl she is. She's always had more love in her little finger than most people have in their whole body. And I think she saved my life many a times. But I'm not up here to brag. I'm up here to tell you my story. Joe told you a lot of our uh, of our battle years. So I want to try to tell you what this program has given me and given our family. When we went to Al-Anon in six, or when I went to Al-Anon and he went to AA in 69, I spent that whole time that I was in those Al-Anon meetings, which was just twice a month, by the way, because we had Al-Anon on, I believe it was first and third Sundays. The rest of the time we sat out in the AA meetings because they were open AA meetings. But any time I was back in that Al-Anon meeting, I was wondering if he snuck out, if he heard what he was supposed to be hearing. You know, I wasn't worried about me. I was okay, I thought. I was worried about him. He's the one that needed it. We, we graduated there after about six months. And like Joe said, we went back out for another ten years of hell. And it was during this ten years of hell that the kids saw me chasing their daddy with a butcher knife. I didn't need the program. <laughs> I had a problem with the second step. My life wasn't unmanageable. You couldn't make me believe that, that it was. When we came back in in 79, he told you about the day he got fired on the job. That night when I went back home, I told him, I said, you can live in my house. You can eat my food. You can sleep in my bed. 
but don't you ask me for a damn penny. You won't be able to draw an employment. You got fired for drinking. I'm not buying your cigarettes. I'm not giving you money to go out and take to them damn bar owners. If you get any money from me at all, it'll be to go and pay a bill. And that's the way I treated him. If I was late on paying a utility bill or something like that, I'd call down and I'd say, what's the late charge? And they'd tell me and I'd add that on to the amount that we owed and I'd give him a check for the exact amount. And God help him if he didn't pay it. Trouble with insanity? Not me. My life unmanageable? Not me. I had it all figured out. People would say, if he's that bad, why don't you leave him? You know what my excuse was? The kids need a father no matter how bad he is because I grew up without one. Now, I'm not standing here and telling you that I'm sorry I stayed with him because today I'm not. But I know today that that was just an excuse. I know today that I loved the man that I knew he could be. But at that time, I didn't know how to separate the disease from the man. Every time one excuse would get knocked down, I'd come up with another one. The night that Lori told him that he stunk, God, I hurt for him. But I wouldn't have let him know it. That was in my heart. You know what was in my head? Ha ha. Good for you. I was a mean person. You know, you always hear about spousal abuse, and it's always the woman that gets the abuse. You never hear about the man that gets the abuse. See, when Joe was drunk, he'd sit at the dining room table. And our dining room table sat right beside of, of the door that went into the living room. And after a while, he'd get leaning so far in one direction that he would fall over across that door. And I'd always have to go into the living room, but I always had a problem picking up this one leg. And I'd say, oops, I kicked Daddy again. Oops, I'm going to have to get something done about that hip. It just won't let me pick that leg up. You know? And then I'd laugh about it. <laughs> the kids saw this. I didn't care. I thought, this will teach you. You know, now you know where the problem's coming from. Because, see, when Joe and I would get to arguing, or before Joe, Joe and I would get to arguing, before he'd even come home, they'd say, Mom, if Ted's drinking tonight, leave him alone. And I'd say, how dare you? I'm the one that's working and keeping food on this table. 
I'm the one that's keeping this household going. And you would rather have him than me. And see, what they were telling me was, Mom, we're tired of the arguing. We're tired of the hatred. Please don't do that tonight. But I didn't hear that. When we came back to this program in 79, after he lost his job, one of the stories that, well, let me tell you what led me back to going back to Al-Anon. I got up one Saturday morning to go to work. And we had just had, oh, it wasn't really a knockdown drag out, but we had had a, a really bad argument the night before. And I guess that was preying on my mind. And uh, I got up to go to work. I was supposed to be there at 6 o'clock. So I left the house about 5.30. The next thing I knew, I was way out the highway. There's several different ways I could get out there. I was out by the theaters. And I have no idea, I cannot tell you to this day, how I got there. I was in a white, what I call a whiteout. It was 9 o'clock. I went to work and told them that my alarm clock had not went off and I had overslept. And I went on with the rest of my day. But I thought to myself, my God, what, where have I been? What have I been doing? And I still don't know yet to this day. And maybe we'll never know. If I do, do, it'll be in God's time that I find out. I could have been just like an alcoholic. I could have hit somebody with my car, killed somebody. Wouldn't know it today. The next week... I'd been thinking about Al-Anon, and I had quit arguing with Joe. Because every time we'd argued, these, these stupid little things like easy does it, let go and let go, all these things would start popping into my mind. And, uh, and that's what I thought they were at that time. These stupid little things that kept me from arguing with him when I really wanted to. And then other things started popping in my mind. I wonder if that meeting's still at 7.30 on Sunday night. I wonder if they still meet down at St. Paul's Cafeteria. I wonder if Jean still goes there. I wonder if I were to call Jean. I wonder if I were to just go to the meetings. I wonder if I were to call and get permission to go to those meetings. Because I'm sure everybody around there knew what was going on in our lives and how I was. Uh... But one Sunday we were sitting around there and I went in and started cleaning up, getting ready to go to the meeting. Now Joe says that he started going to the meeting and I said, I'll go with you. And that may be true. But the way I remember it is that I decided to go to the meeting and he said, I will go with you. I can't stand up here and tell you whose whose story is right and whose is wrong, because I don't know. And it's not important. The important thing is we got there.
like Joe told you, for several months. Well, from February until November, he continued to drink. And I made such a pain out of myself to those people in AA. And if they weren't all dead, I'd have to go and make amends to them. If I would hear of one of them going out of town somewhere to speak, I'd say, Do they have Ellen on there? Well, I don't know. Maybe they do. Well, do you care if Joe and I go along so I can go to their Al-Anon meetings? And I did that every time I found out that somebody was going out of town to talk. There came the day that uh, Joe went into treatment. Well, let me back up. Thanksgiving. We always went up to Hardinsburg, Kentucky and spent it with his brother. And Joe and his brother would usually go out to uh, go out and hunt. And Joanne, I would stay there and cook and maybe go shopping, whatever we wanted to do. But we always made plans for New Year's Eve. You can always find a dance at Tell City, one of the clubs, uh, for New Year's Eve dance. And that's something that Joe and I, Joanne and I both love, dearly love to do. <coughs> And she said, well, where are we going this year? And, and we also used it to celebrate our anniversary. Our anniversary is January the 7th. And she said, well, where do we want to try to go to this year? We want to go to the Moose? We want to go where? And I said, Joanne, I'm not making any plans to go anywhere. And she said, why? And I said, I don't know if we'll still be married January the 7th. I said, I can't handle his drinking anymore. And I said, I don't know whether it'll be this drunk, the next drunk, or the one after that, but I said, I'm not making any long-term plans. I said, I'm trying to get by today. The day that he went into treatment was also the day that our oldest son had to go to court, had to go see the juvenile officer. And we, I took off from work. We went took care of our businesses. I went back to work. Joe was supposed to go back to work. Well, that afternoon when we dropped, or when the son got out of school and come in while well, his dad was there and he was drunk, and his dad proceeded to call him a pothead, and I, I don't know what all went on. I was not there. But Joe had a, Joe Jr. had a cast on his arm where he had broken his arm playing touch football and in the scuffle his cast got broke that's when he left and came down to tell me that he wasn't going home anymore that he couldn't stand being called a pothead and you know the, the sad part of all of this is that I think in my heart that I knew my son was using drugs and alcohol, but I wouldn't admit it to myself. Because this is the son that I had relied on for so many things. And he always said, I'm never going to be like my daddy. Well, I told my son that night, night I said, go in the office. I said, I got about a half hour work left. And I said, and I'll be in there in a minute to finish up my paperwork. And I said, then we'll both go. And I said, when we get home, 
you'll need some clothes. And I said, but before you pack those clothes, I'm going to ask your dad if he wants to leave or if he wants me to leave. Because I really don't care anymore. I just know I cannot put up with any more of it. When I walked in the door, the front, front door of the house, Joe looked up at me and he had been crying. And he said, I can't stop drinking by myself. Will you take me to St. Mary's? And that is really where my road to recovery started. We had no marriage. We had no life. We were seven people existing under one roof. That's all I can say about it. None of us were living. My son was drinking and using drugs to try to get away from it. Or our son. And I was going nuts. Took him to St. Mary's that night. And they recommended that I come back on Wednesday nights for Al-Anon. And I said, what good will that do? Because I really didn't think he'd get sober. But I thought, I've tried everything, and there hasn't been anything that I've been able to do that's got him sober. Might as well try one more time. So on the next Wednesday, I went down to Al-Anon. Went down to Seton Manor. They were having the meetings there. Big John was there. He's been picking on me ever since. And I picked back. And I picked back. Big John's been one of the blessings of this program. Although I don't like to admit it, so don't tell him, okay? <laughs> uh, walked up the steps. The Elon meeting was upstairs, and I walked up the steps, and God, there was a bunch of people there. There must have been 50 people up there. And I thought, I can't do this. There's too many people. I'd never seen this many people except at a dinner meeting, and I didn't have to, you know, face them by myself at a dinner meeting. And uh, turned around and started to go back down the steps. And his hand touched my shoulder. And this lady said, Hi, I'm Laverne. You're new here, I believe. Welcome. We need you. I had not heard those words in a lot of years that I was welcome anywhere or that I was needed. That woman today is my sponsor. I don't know what was said in that meeting. I don't know what the meeting was about. But when it was come time to leave, I started down the steps. And she came over to me again, and she put her arms around me and hugged me, and she says, please come back. We love having you. I've been going back ever since. Not to that meeting, but to different meetings. But I went to that meeting every Wednesday night for almost two years, except for three weeks. 
And I had had surgery, and my doctor told me that I shouldn't travel that far. And at least not until I came back to for my six weeks checkup. So I was supposed to go back in six weeks down to Evansville. And uh, at the end of three weeks, Joe asked me if I wanted to go to Evansville to a meeting. <laughs> uh, but I missed three weeks. But other than that, I was there. My sponsor worked on me getting, trying to get me into service work, and I kept using all kinds of excuses because, you know, that was a big meeting. I could handle chairing the little meeting at Tell City. I mean, if we were lucky, we might have five people there. But I said, Laverne, I said, uh, well, you know, weather's starting to get bad. And uh, I said, if I sign up to, to chair a meeting and then, then the weather gets bad and we can't come down here, you know, uh, I, I just don't think I need to right now. And she said, okay. And she left me alone till spring. And she got me involved in service, doing service work. Next thing I knew, I was a group rep. Next thing after that, I was a DR. And, and it just kept going on. But the main thing she helped me with is getting my marriage back together. She said if we couldn't learn to c communicate together, that we would never have a life together. And she said, and I recommend you keep on going down to Evansville. And I said, well, we can come down and ride down with you, can't we? And she says, once in a while, yeah. But she said, you need that time with Joe. And, you know, it was a long time there that we would ride down to that meeting on Wednesday nights, that 50 miles. And that's what it was. It's 50 miles from the front of our house where we parked the car to the parking lot to where we parked. And there were a lot of nights that we would walk, drive down there in total silence. But coming back, we had something in common. And, and sometimes it was him that would start the conversation, and sometimes it was me that would start the conversation. And it was like, I heard something in the meeting tonight, and I'm not sure I agree with it. And then the other one would say, well, did you ever stop to think that maybe they mean such and such? And I'd say, no. I didn't think about that. We had something in common to talk about and to discuss. It wasn't what bills are we going to pay this week. It wasn't which one of the kids did something wrong this week. It was something to have a conversation about. And our program grew from there. Our lives together grew from there. Thank God for a sponsor to recommend stuff, something like that. And was smarter than I was. If I'd have had my way, I'd have rode went down there with her every week because she, at that time, she was my idol. You know, she had what I wanted. And I would go to any length to get it. And if I could, the more time I could spend with her, the better off I was because it was going to take a lot to sink into this hard head of mine. I can't, couldn't help but grinning when Joe was talking about Patsy being heart thick headed. <laughs> she got it honest. 
she's got a mother and father. <laughs> we both have our times. And we do yet today. Because this program tells me I don't have to be perfect. I'm not striving for perfection. I'm striving to be better than I was yesterday and the week before last. Striving to be the best me I can for today. Uh, My son was still using alcohol, or our son was still using alcohol and drugs. And then along with the problems that our other son was giving us, I was constantly having battles with myself, especially where Joe Jr. was concerned. You see, he went through his first treatment program in March of 80. I, don't, I can't tell you the date that he went in or the date that he came out, but I know he was there for my birthday, which is the end of March. So if it had been in the good Lord's plan for him, so he could be celebrating 20 years instead of 13. But that wasn't God's plan for him. And I have to accept that today. And I have accepted it. <clears throat> he would be doing things and the mother and me would say, do it this way. Take care of him. He is your son. You know, you brought him into this world. You have to take care of him. Then Al-Anon was standing over here and saying, detach. Let him know you love him, but detach. Don't stop a crisis from happening. And then Al-Anon, uh, the mother would say, yeah, but. And Al-Anon would say, no, yeah, but. This is what you have to do. And I fought with myself for four years. And it finally came to a time when I could let God have him. And it was in a room of Al-Anon. Well, no, it wasn't either. It was at a meeting before the meeting. Because we always went early and we always stayed late. And we'd have meetings with friends. There's one of them sitting here right today, her and her husband. Well, there's another one that came in. Later on to Daryl and Lana, they came in along about that time. And uh, Mary Joyce was a nurse at the treatment center. And, you know, uh, somebody asked me one time, said, Betty, when are you going to give him the dignity to make his own mistakes and learn from them? And, you know, I know I had been told that before. But no one had ever put the word dignity in there. And for some reason, that meant something to me that time. Well, it didn't give me long. I didn't have too long to wait until I got a chance to practice that. He got into trouble again. We went to court again. And by this time, we were on first-name basis with the judge and the prosecutor and the whole bit. 
prosecutor came up to us and took us out in the hall and said, Well, Betty and Joe, what do you want us to try this time? And before Joe could say anything, I told him, You know, we are his parents. I am his mother, and I love him dearly. But you have to do what you have to do, and he has to do what he has to do. I cannot fix him anymore. So we went back into that courtroom, and the judge asked me if we would take him to Evansville. And I said, if that's the only way he can go, we'll take him. But I want the stipulation to say that, you know, this isn't our doing this time. This is between you and him. Because he had talked to judge into letting him go to treatment one more time while we were in there. And see, the years before, he'd gone in the Army, he'd gone to treatment. This, this would have been his third treatment <coughs> center. He'd gone to the Army to get out of trouble. Uh, God, you name it, he took off and went to Texas two or three different times, spent time down there. And uh, the judge said, what do you mean? I said, we will take him if he's ordered down there, and you have no way of taking him, but that's the only way we will take him. But I want it known, too, that if he goes to this treatment center, that there's a halfway house down there, that as long as he stays sober, and stays off of drugs, he can stay there, but he has no home in Tell City. About tore my heart out. But it was something I had to do, and I knew that. Everything was fine. We started to tell, uh, started to Evansville, and time we got before we got out of Troy, he started this whole line up again of the world owing him him his life on a silver platter. And I told Joe to pull over. And I turned around and I said, look, I said, you're my son, I love you. But I have heard all of this crap I'm going to listen to. You've got a choice to make right now. Not five minutes from now, not next week, it's right now. We can either continue on our trip and take you to Evansville, and you can talk like you've got sense, or keep your mouth shut unless you've got something decent to say, or we will turn around and you can do whatever you have to do, go to prison, whatever. I am not going to allow you to pull my chain anymore. You've pulled it too many times. He said, let's go to Evansville. And you know, I'd love to tell you that his life has been beautiful since then, but it hasn't. He still didn't get sober for, well, he stayed sober while he was at the halfway house for two years. He stayed, well, he stayed dry. And I'd run in from, to somebody from Evansville and they'd say, Hi, saw little Joe the other day. He's doing pretty good. And boy, I'd feel good about that. And then I'd run into somebody and say, I haven't seen little Joe for a while. My old mother would kick in. 
Can I go fix him? Yeah. But I finally got the courage to tell some of these people that were reporting on him, don't tell me anything. I don't want to know it. If he wants to tell me, he can come and tell me. But see, I I couldn't take the ups and downs anymore, and I'd rather not know. Because as long as I didn't know, I wasn't wanting to go and fix him. Because see, I'm a fixer. Uh, there came a time when he came to me, though. <clears throat> And he'd come up to the house and spend the weekends because that's the only way he'd get his son for his weekend visitations was if he would come to our house. And every time he'd come up there, I'd think, oh, God, I hope he's doing okay. And I'd say something to Joe, and Joe'd say, you've got your hopes up before. But there came this time that he came up there, and, and uh, we had spaghetti for supper that night. And Kent, I guess, was three about three, wasn't he? And of course, you know, three-year-old and spaghetti. So he got through eating his spaghetti, and I told Lori, I said, Lori, you want to go get me a washcloth, and I'll clean, clean Ken up. And Joe said, no. Joe Jr. said, no. And I said, why? And he said, Mom, he's my son. He's my responsibility. I'll take care of it. He had never said that to me before. Usually it was, Lori... Go take Ken in and clean him up. Go take Ken in and, and get him ready for bed. It was always somebody else doing for Kent. But this night he said, he's my responsibility. And I knew that there was something different about him that night. He has not had a drink since. Now, he may be drunk tomorrow. I don't know. This is a strange disease. But thank God, he's had 13 years. And it wasn't anything I did. It was you people. You know, when I finally gave up and let go of him, you people got him sober. And you don't know how grateful I am for that. I am so proud of him. He has got a family now that he dearly loves. You know, he's got a, he married a lady that had three daughters, and uh, he couldn't love them any more than if they were his. And I think she feels the same way about Kent. The best thing that ever happened in his life. That's what he tells me, and that's what I believe. We're not as close as I wish we were, but in God's time that will happen too. Because I know today that everything that happens in our lives is in God's time. It's not my time. Because, you know, if it had been my time, we'd have been close 20 years ago. All of us would have been. And he'd have been sober 20 years ago. Yeah. And everything would have been perfect 20 years ago. And life isn't like that. I have to know that life is on God's terms, not mine. God has a plan for me and for mine. And I also have to remember that mine are not mine. They are His. They are children of God, just like I am. Sure, I claim them. I gave them life. 
But they're not mine. They're his. And I have to allow each one of my children to do the things that they need to do for themselves, whether I think they're wrong or right. And with God's help, it'll be right. But they have to ask for it, not me. All I can say is, God, please guide them. And please take care of them. Now, it would be great if I could sit here and tell you I'd do that 100% of the time, 724. You know, I can stand up here and I can work a perfect program from this podium. And I can work a perfect program around the tables of Al-Anon. But I'm not perfect. And I know that today. Joe and I still have arguments. And I still have to go up to him and say, I'm sorry. Most of the time when I tell him I'm sorry, it's not because of being angry. It's because of the way I reacted with that anger. And there have been times when I have had to tell him I'm sorry I was angry. Because the reason I got angry wasn't necessarily because of what he said or did. It was because I was already angry because of something that somebody else did. Probably something went wrong at work and I was aggravated at it. Or I didn't think of halt. I get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, too tired. And I, I let my actions or my head take over instead of my heart. This program has been a blessing to me and to my family. got a 19-year-old granddaughter. She's fixing to make me a great-grandma. And I was having problems with that. You know, 57 years old is just a little bit young to be a grandmother, or a great-grandmother. But the more I think about it, the more I'm happy about it. Because, you know, these grandchildren of ours... They are taking the benefits of the Al-Anon program. They are getting them from me. And their, their parents didn't choose to. We've only got two children, or three children that have grandchildren. Uh, we're not around Joe's kids a lot because we don't make it to Evansville and they don't make it up a lot. But the ones that are there in Huntingburg and Jasper, they're close to us. They get the benefits of Al-Anon and of what I've learned in Al-Anon. And the 19-year-old granddaughter that's fixing to make me a great-grandmother, the other day, when the, tra- the Tuesday when the tragedy happened, she tried to call me and she couldn't get through. I was on the Internet looking up some information for, for my daughter, for one of the other daughters. And uh, when I found out that she tried to call me, I called her and I said, uh, What's wrong? And she said, nothing, Grandma. But she said, I just need to talk to someone that would understand what I'm going through. And she was hurting for the people in New York and Washington. And she needed to talk about it. And I said, well, honey, I'm sorry I wasn't available for you. And she said, that's all right. She said, you taught me something else. And I said, what's that? She said, I sat down and I wrote a little letter to Jaden, which is the name that she has picked for her baby girl. 
letting her know, telling her what I think I would feel if she was one of those people that they can't find. And she says, I'm okay now. She says, I got it out. She's heard me say, if you can't talk to the person, write a letter. And she did that. She has called me a lot of times, concerned about friends of hers and what she could do about trying to get them to quit drinking or using drugs. And I said, well, what do you think you can do? She says, I can't do anything, Grandma. She said, all I can do is let them know that I'm there for them, that I want to be their friend, that I don't like what they're doing, but if it's what they have to do, that's what they have to do. You folks know where that came from. That came from Alanine. And I've been able to pass that on to her. Things that I haven't been able to pass on to their parents, I've been able to pass on to them. And it's great. See, this is one of the ways that I've made my amends to my children. Sure, I've gone and told them that I loved them and that I was sorry for the things of the past. But I've also told them I can't go back and change them. All I can do is try to be a better me today. And that's all I can do. And by being able to pass this on stuff that I have learned on to my grandchildren, that's another way of making amends to my children. I don't know how long I've talked. I think I've probably talked long enough. But you know, the love that I've learned in this program is the love that I never would have learned had it not been for Alan, for you people. I think Joe, like he said, I think we've got a stronger love today than we've ever known. Because we know today that love is unconditional. You know, I don't have to go and do something for him for him to know he loves me. All right, for him to know I love him. And I don't have to try to do as good or as better or better than him for him. Hoping that will, you know, make him love me more. Today he knows I love him. My children know I love them. And the people in the program know that I love them. And I do. You'll never know how much I love you. I want to leave you with one little prayer. I, this isn't anything of mine. I'm no guru. I, you know, everything I've got in this meeting, or God, I have taken from somebody else around these rooms or in the books. I did the same thing for, with this. May the road rise to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall softly upon your fields. May the sunshine always <clears throat> warm your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. If no one's told you today I love you, I love you. Thank you.